We have to make it more complicated. We have to make it more of us. We have to add something to that. That's our human fallen nature. But Jesus says, just look. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So so Jesus makes this clear parallel between the pole and the serpent on the pole and himself. Now, here's the really startling part of that, unless in case you hadn't caught on to that yet, is that Jesus just compared himself to a snake. And if these weren't God's words, it would be blasphemous for us to say this that Jesus himself from his own mouth compared himself to a snake. Now let's remind ourselves of what the snake represents in Scripture. It comes to us way back in Genesis 3. When the serpent, the snake, comes to the woman, that is Satan, Lucifer, in the form of a snake, and it is by means of his temptation that the fall comes to man. Cursed is the snake, cursed is the serpent, crawl on your belly your entire life. And from that, we see this theme. We won't take the time to trace it all because it's, it's a theme that, that goes from Genesis, literally to, from Genesis to Revelation. This theme of the serpent. We see it show up all over the places in like, places like uh, Goliath's armor. If we were to look at that passage, we would see that Goliath's armor was fashioned to look like a snake. So in your mind, when you're picturing the giant Goliath, you should picture a giant man wearing armor that's fashioned to look snake-like. We see it in the themes from Daniel, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah. All three of them will metaphorically compare Egypt to snakes, to Babylon to snakes. We see it all throughout the prophets. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see Jesus calling people a brood of vipers. We see John the Baptist calling people a brood of vipers. We see it in the ancient god Dagon, which was a snake. We see it all the way to the book of Revelation when the dragon, the dragon is a winged snake. In fact, we see it even in the very word itself. The Hebrew word for serpent has a verb form. So this doesn't work in English. We don't go, we don't say, uh, go snaking around. Well, I guess you could if you had a clog in your sink. But we don't really use the word snake in the same way as, as a verb. In the Hebrew, serpent also has a verb form. You know what that verb form means? To use divination. To practice divination is to serpent in the Hebrew or to snake in the Hebrew. Something that God categorically condemns all throughout the Old Covenant. And so we see this theme of of the snake and, and the curse of the snake. And then we see Jesus in one of the very first instances in the Gospel of John will compare himself to that snake. And here's the parallel to grasp. The remedy... In Numbers 21, is very much like the curse, but also different from the curse. So also, Jesus says, just like the Son of Man is very much like the curse, but also different from the curse. So here's the snake that's lifted up on the pole. And of course, the the snake was the curse. The death from the snake bite was the curse. And the remedy for the curse, God could have chosen anything. He could have said, lift up a sheep. 
He could have said, lift up a camel. He could have said, lift up a rock. He could have said, look to that cloud. He could have said whatever he wanted. But he specifically said, make it a serpent. Make it very much like the curse, but also different from the curse. Because he didn't say to Moses, get one of those dead serpents. Just get one of the dead vipers. Wrap it around a pole, lift it up. People look at it, they'll be healed. It could not be a live serpent. It couldn't be a dead serpent. It couldn't be a real serpent. It had to be a fashioned serpent. One, Romans chapter 8, made in the likeness of sinful flesh. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, one who was made to be sin. Jesus, in order to be our remedy, had to be like the curse, but also unlike the curse. He who was made to be sin, yet without sin, was made to be our sin. That is the the aspect of this, that if God had not said this himself, it would be blasphemous for us to say that God himself is made to be my sin. Now, here we're reminded of Nicodemus's struggle, his struggle to see his own sin. Because you know what? You cannot look upon a Jesus who is sin in theory and be saved. Jesus is not sin in theory. Jesus is not an amalgamation of all the sin of the world. Jesus is not a representative of all the world's sin. Jesus is your sin. If He is not your sin, then your sin has not been punished by God and you still owe for that. Either Jesus is made to be distinctly your sin, that sin that you committed this week, He is either made to be that sin or He is not your rescue. He can't be your theoretical rescue. He can't be your concept of a rescue. He must be made to be what you are or else He is not the fitting sacrifice for your sin and you still stand condemned for that sin. This is why we cannot see ourselves by as a sinner by faith alone. We cannot just simply say, well, the Bible says it, so I believe it. You must see it in you, and you must look to Jesus and see it on Him. You must see Him made into that which you did this past week and this past month and even maybe this morning. You must see Him as that, or He's not your Savior. Nicodemus didn't see that yet. So we see that parallel as well. We also see the parallel of the presentation. They're both lifted up in this public sort of presentation. The pole is lifted up. Everyone who would look, looks and they're healed. The cross is lifted up in this public sort of of presentation. And we talked earlier about how lifting up clearly means the crucifixion. So this lifting up, also we see as a metaphor for Jesus, for, for uh, proclaiming the gospel. Oftentimes, you know, we think about Paul says, I, know, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Or we see this phrase lifted up. And sometimes that means glorifying Jesus by preaching the gospel of His crucifixion. So here's the irony of all that, is that Jesus' greatest earthly shame 
is also his greatest glory to date. Jesus will return in more glory. He will return as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will receive far more glory. But as it is now, his greatest glory was his greatest shame. His greatest glory was being lifted up in such shame and such agony. And the gospel writers will pick up on this, not making light of the shame or not lessening the shame at all, but taking glory in the one who would be shamed for them. So we see this as well. Jesus' greatest shame is also his greatest earthly glory. Now, now we also want to see this. We also want to see the proof of how they looked. So the solution, their remedy was to look upon the pole. Look upon the pole and you'll be healed. If they look upon the pole, then they will live. If they don't look upon the pole, they won't live. How do they know that they were healed? Well, in the passage back in Numbers chapter 21, the next passage says the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. So immediately following this, they moved to another location. If they were snake bit and dying from snake bites, then they wouldn't be moving. So as they are healed, they are able to continue moving along. They're they're able to continue journeying. They're able to continue on the path of obedience, so to speak. Likewise, we see the same thing in our life. If we have looked upon the Savior and been healed, then the Bible tells us we will know this because we will keep His commands. First John tells us this is how we know that we've passed from death unto life because we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. So this is how that they knew. This is how that we know this proof is in the continued obedience and the changed life. But now we want to see this, is that when, they, when the people are told to look upon this pole, I'm going to imagine, I'm going to use a little bit of sanctified imagination, and I'm going to speculate that perhaps there were some that were skeptical. There were some who were bitten by the snake, by the fiery serpents, and they were dying. And and here comes Moses and says, God told me to make this, this serpent, look upon this serpent here on this pole, you'll be healed. And do you think that there were some who would say, nah, there's no way. There's no way that just looking upon a serpent on a pole is going to heal as they drifted off into death. Kind of reminds me, uh, doesn't it, of of, uh, the Syrian Naaman? Remember him? Who was leprous? And Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And he says, it's crazy. I'm not doing that. I'm going back home. That's too easy. That's too simple. Nothing that simple is going to heal me from leprosy. Nothing as simple as looking at a pole is going to heal me from a a serpent bite. Nothing as simple as believing upon a man who died 2,000 years ago is going to save me today. Nothing that easy. Nothing's that simple. Our human pride wants to stand in the way of that and says, that's too simple. That's too easy. It has to be more of you. It has to be more of you. You've got to do something more than that because that cannot save. We have to make it more complicated. We have to make it more of us. We have to add something to that. That's our human fallen nature. But Jesus says, just look. Moses says, just look. Just look. Just look and believe and you'll be healed. We see the same thing today. Now, 2,000 years later, that's too simple. That's too easy. It has to be something of ourselves. Now, lastly, let me look uh, quickly at the results, the parallel results 
Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22 says this, Look unto me and ye and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look unto me and be saved. Now, Nicodemus's struggle is he, he knows the scriptures and in his heart he wants the life that the scriptures promise, but he can't believe. And he's struggling with how he is to believe. And Jesus is trying to help him to believe. He's, Jesus is trying to, in a human conversation, facilitate belief for him. And so Jesus' answer to this is, just as Moses lifted up the pole and people looked and were saved, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And those who look will be saved. Jesus says that they may believe in him. Now that word believe, there's an Old Testament parallel to that word. And it's the word that's used when God says to Moses, those who look at the pole, they will be healed. Because that word doesn't just mean look with the eyes or perceive with the eyes. It means to look with belief, to look with trust. Kind of like the difference between how you might say, look both ways before you cross the road. But then you also might say, I look to my spouse for support. Okay, One just speaks of looking and perceiving. The other speaks of looking with trust and looking with belief. And that's the word that Moses uses in Numbers 21. Look with belief, look with trust. So Jesus uses a synonym to say, those who believe will be saved. Look to him and we will be saved. A lot of people who have preached this passage, I'm not the first, will illustrate this with the story that I want to read to us now the story of Charles Spurgeon's Spurgeon's conversion. So just to let you know, I'm not the first to kind of make this connection, but as I read his story, I think you'll see why a lot of people have made this connection. If you've never heard the story of the conversion of Charles Spurgeon, then you'll recognize just how appropriate it is to this passage. Charles Spurgeon, most of us are probably aware, was the greatest 19th century preacher there was. His insight into the scriptures and his way with words and his way of presenting ideas from the scriptures are still studied to this day. He had a phenomenal insight into the scriptures. And yet sometimes when there is a figure, a person who is such a uh, articulator of the scriptures, sometimes it's nice to look back and see how they began on that journey, how that conversion took place. So from his autobiography, I would like to just read the story of Spurgeon's Spurgeon's conversion. Charles Spurgeon was Nicodemus. Charles Spurgeon was converted when he was 15, but as a 15-year-old, he wasn't new to the Scriptures. He was, as a 15-year-old, he probably had read more theology than most of us will in our lifetime. He was extremely well-read in theology. However, just like Nicodemus, he had a heart that wanted to believe But as a 15-year-old, he had not believed. He had not received this life in Jesus. He knew all about it. He could recite it. He could teach it. But he didn't have it. He didn't possess it. And so here's the story of his conversion. He writes this in his own words. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now 
Had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. So on a Sunday morning, he's going to worship with this tremendous snowstorm hits. And through the snowstorm, he's not able to make it to the church he was aiming to attend. But the snowstorm diverts him to another church. And he says this was the providence of God. He says, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45 and verse 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look, now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man don't need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man don't need to be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will find no comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look to me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone about that length and managed to spin spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked right at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you follow me now, in this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can do. Young man, look to Christ. Look, look, look. You've got nothing to do but to look and to live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up. The people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them. Oh, the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. What's the point? 
The point is this. Nicodemus, in his desire to believe, was trying to comprehend what he needed to understand in order to believe. And Jesus' answer to him is, you can't. All you do is look to the Son of Man. Just look. Just look to Him. Just look to Him. That's not to say we are not to grow in understanding. And that's not to say that the Spirit doesn't do His work. He must do His work. The writer to the Hebrews will, will reprimand the Hebrew believers because they have not grown in their understanding. Paul will write to the Corinthians and say, you're still needing milk. But that is to say, to receive the life that Nicodemus yearns for. He's trying to figure it out. And Jesus says, no, just look. Just look. Just look and believe. Just look and believe. And you will have life. This is a spirit thing. You can't understand new birth. You can't understand the working of the spirit. You can't understand how it is that God healed by looking at a serpent on a pole. You can't even understand how the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. But you must look. Just look. Now, one final thing, and then we'll end. I wonder, as I think back to Numbers 21 again, and I put myself in the place of those who were snake bit. And here comes Moses, and he says, look to the pole, look to the serpent, look to the curse, look to that which bits you, look to the curse, and you will be healed. And then I believe it. How am I going to look at that pole? Am I going to give that pole a glancing look once a week? Am I just going to glance over at that pole, sort of half paying attention to it, half worried about this other thing going over here, on over here and this thing over here and what sort of manna we're going to have for dinner? Or am I going to burn a hole through that pole with my eyes? If that is my salvation, am I not going to look with the intensity that my eternal life depends on looking to that pole? There are a great many who would say they've looked to the Son of Man And their glance to the Son of Man is once a week. Or maybe once most weeks. Maybe a time or two during the week. Now the earnestness of our gaze doesn't save us. But if our gaze to the Son of Man is a believing, saving one, it will be the most intense of all. It will be the intensest of looks. It will be the look that believes that my look to Him is all that's standing between me and eternity. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ. 
through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.